Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to another AMP commentary. I'm John Ingle. I'm Mitch Bryan. And I'm Todd Norris. And today we are going to be talking over Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway. And as you see, perfectly harmless looking. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Now, it was at the top of these stairs that the second murder took place. She came out of the door there and met the victim at the top. Of course, in a flash, there was the knife, and in no time, the victim tumbled and fell with a horrible crash. I think the bat broke immediately and hit the floor. It was, it's difficult to describe the way that the, the, the twisting of the, of the, well, I, it's, I won't dwell upon it. Let, let, come upstairs. Of course, the victim, or should I say victims, hadn't any conception as to the type of people they would be confronted with in this house, especially the woman. She was the weirdest and the most... Well, well let's go into her bedroom. Here's the woman's room, still beautifully preserved. 
and the imprint of her figure on the bed where she used to lay. I think some of her clothes are still in this wardrobe. the son's room, but uh, we won't go in there because his favorite spot was the little parlor behind his office in the motel. Let's go down there. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of... Uh, uh, well, let's go in. Well, I suppose you'd call this his hideaway. His hobby, as you see, was taxidermy. Crow here, an owl there. Now, an important scene took place in this room. There was a private supper here. And, uh, oh, by the way, this picture has great significance because... Uh, let's go along to cabin number one. I want to show you something there. All tidied up. bathroom. Well, they've cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here very slowly. Of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And, disrespectful as that sounds to be talking over it but that's what we're terrible. doing that's what we're doing <laughs> yeah we'll see whether we can keep it going so, whether we wind up being mesmerized by the movie and forget to say anything well it might be difficult you know the one of the more mesmerizing factors 
is the music, and we won't be hearing that while no, we're doing we the commentary. Won't. We talked about that. Funny enough, Mitch, I didn't even think about this when I suggested that we do this movie. This is our second consecutive Hitchcock commentary. Uh, the last one we is. did was North by Northwest. Second consecutive movies by Hitchcock as well. So we we're in was... a little bit of a hiatus from 007 by 7, and so uh, we thought that we need to keep things rolling and keep the magic happening and make sure that our Patreon is productive. And so that's that's why we're going to try to do a few more of these. But I'm looking okay. forward to doing Psycho. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, Psycho's good for Halloween season as well. So This will be good yeah. for me because I actually have not seen Psycho a, a zillion times. I mean, I'm obviously familiar with it, but it's not one that I... I've probably seen it only three or four times, so this will be great. Oh, wow. Well, so what we'll ask you to do if you're going to queue up and follow along is uh, queue it up to where the Paramount logo comes up and fades out and pause it when it goes to black, and that's the place that we will start it from. So we'll let you do that, and we'll give uh, we'll give you time. Let's, let's just say we're paused, and so we'll get ready. Get set. Three, two, one. Press play. And zoom comes all this. So um, these bars, according to Stephen Rabello's book about the making of Hitchcock, this these titles were using black metal bars against a white backdrop, stop motion animated for all the horizontal stuff, and then I guess and 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 the vertical stuff, and then mm-hmm. composited on top of that with letters. So this was all designed by Saul Bass and painstakingly shot it was not easy no that's kind of how he did things though right and i think it gives you can kind of see the distinctive feel it's got that stop motion kind of feel it's just a little bit little bit of chop to it but it's really smooth at the same time i've actually done set of good i've actually done titles like this once my uh friend jeff and i did a, a short stop motion film and about someone's arm falling asleep um, and we did these, we did these style and then had an arm come in with little uh, needles and pins pricking it, uh, kind of a, more of a riff off of the man with the golden arm, I guess, than this, but big Saul Bass fans we were for sure. And this was the third set of titles he had done for Hitchcock. He had done Vertigo and those kinetic titles from North by Northwest. And so these are equally kinetic. Right. And he gets two credits in the, in the opening credits here. That's right. right. Here's yeah, a pictorial consultant, Saul Bass as well. Which has a lot of story behind it, right? Uh, some of it true, some of it not. Uh, yeah, some of it embellished over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard a we'll lot get of different. Into that later. A lot of different interpretations of that story. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of different, uh, very similar stories, and then Saul Bass's story is what it <laughs> seems it, to be. I don't know if that was the first mirror image, but I think everybody who wants to should take a drink every time there's a mirror in this movie. We'll right. see how how drunk we can get. Mm. So this was the shot that Hitchcock thought was going to be this great swoop-in four-mile-long dolly using the helicopter, the longest dolly shot ever achieved, and was going to approximate a fly going in through the window and winding up in the room. But they could never get it to work. There were not helicopter mounts. And so after principal photography, he sent the small crew back to Phoenix to do these panoramic pans. And... I don't know whether it's Donald Spoto or one of those guys writes about the fact that there's a chair here in the foreground and suggests that we're supposed to 
come into the window and sit down in the chair. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. It's funny too, because the house, it's a, it ends up being a similar opening to, to rope where you get that kind of pan across the city and then enter into the window for the murder in that case. Uh, but I find it interesting that Hitchcock had such an ambitious idea for the very beginning of this movie, which was to be one of his lowest budget films, at least of the recent years. Um, so maybe he just wanted to make a movie. Big, he right. He wanted to make a big splash right at the beginning, sell it as a big, you know, a big Hitchcock film and then tone it down for the rest of the movie. I don't know if that was his idea or not, but he was also fascinated by the fact that she's got a real uh, kind of off the shelf brassiere. Right. The mechanics of the brassiere are apparent, and he was uh, fascinated by that, and he wanted this all to be very real. Uh, of course, we're already in scandalous territory because we've got two people in bed, and I don't think anybody's feet are on the floor. Yeah, I mean, so already we've got people having sex in the afternoon, and that's the production code was already going to start having a fit over this. Yeah, he said that the reason why he included the uh, the exact time on the credit, you know, after it says Phoenix, Arizona, was that it was clear that she was having to do this on her lunch hour, <laughs> that the poor girl could only find time for love <laughs> at her lunch hour. And apparently the other reason he put the date in was because when they got the process plates back from the first uh, from the first trip by the second unit to go shoot plates in Phoenix, they shot and it was Christmas time and there's Christmas decorations up on the street and Hitchcock was very upset about that but didn't want to go reshoot all the plates and so he decided if he would put the date there that nobody would call him on the fact that there were Christmas decorations on the street. Mm. Yeah, I think you only see them in one shot. Yeah, only only one shot. But I did notice them actually before I had read about that and I thought, well, that's interesting. It's like, it's a Shane Black movie. They are really lazy in <laughs> Phoenix. The city... Yeah. City Works Department, whoever puts up the decorations, they just don't take, them, take down. them down. And John Gavin here, who we know uh, screen tested for James Bond, and thank God that didn't happen. Hitchcock thought he was a real stiff and was not happy using him. He was a contract player at Universal, and so I think they got him for dirt cheap for this part. And uh, he, there was not a lot of sparks flying between the two of them and Apparently Hitchcock was very upset about that and asked Janet Lee to get him more excited during the scene. I kind of like what we get. I don't think he gives a good performance. I trust Hitchcock knew what he was talking about. There's something about the fact that I don't actually believe the, the relationship that much that kind of works for me in a weird way. Like As, he's leading her on? Well, it, there isn't sparks. They're just kind of like going, they're, they're trying to make something work that was never going to work. And it makes it all the more tragic that she takes that step, you know, maybe in my mind, I see her taking the big step she does and and stealing the money and going to him as more of a desperate act to get out of her mundane life than it is to out of love. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, We all, we all have had those relationships. I'm sure where we've mistaken the relationship for the the goal when it was really just trying to do something different with our lives. Um, So I don't know. It kind of works for me, but I agree that there's no sparks here. He's, he's pretty dull. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, this film was shot by his TV crew to save money. They say that they were shooting three days and then the fourth day of the week was the first day of shooting Psycho and they shot Psycho for 30 days and they went right back to work the next day to go back to the TV series. Yeah. There we've got Hitchcock back there through the window. 
Oh, yeah. He apparently wanted to be in the same scene as his daughter, and that is oh, cool. his daughter, yeah. Patricia, on there's, the left. There's Pat Hitchcock. Um, only pre- She only had the one previous role, right? And um, Strangers on a... Or, yeah, Strangers on a Train was her only other role for Hitchcock, right? I think there's one more. I think she I think did three. another one. I can't remember yeah. what the third one Maybe is. Stage Fright, an early one Maybe. when she was much younger. One that I hadn't seen very much at all. Stage Fright's one of those. Yeah, I've seen it. I don't revisit it like the others. So really, they say that he shot almost the entire movie with a 50 millimeter lens because he wanted everything to approximate the way that we see the world. Yeah, so far, that's what it looks like. I uh, the the really only research that I did for watching this uh, this time was rereading the chapter of the Truffaut Hitchcock book where they talk about this. And um, Hitchcock said that with the exception of the, you know, the shower scene and basically any time somebody gets killed he shot all this coverage like the scenes we're showing here exactly like the tv show at a super zippy schedule but then they slowed down and took their time on the moments that we all remember from the movie so it's not like he completely breezed over everything yeah all in the shower scene and then the stuff done with a double and getting rid of the body and all that stuff was 11 days of a 30-day schedule yeah they definitely took their time on that stuff. So we have a couple of other actors here to talk about. Vaughn, Vaughn Taylor is um, Vivian Lee's, or oh, sorry, God dang it, <laughs> Janet Lee's boss, and then uh, Frank Albertson is the uh, the oil man. Seems a little more Texas than Arizona to me, but I'm sure they have theirs. There are guys like this too. Frank Albertson is Sam Wainwright from It's a Wonderful Life. I had no idea. I can't. I still don't see it, but he, but he was the, the hee-haw man himself from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> he was he only like fifty-one. Fifty-one, Mitch. Really? I, wow. I mean, he's not that much Hard older miles. than I am now. That means I'm old, he, I'm older than him too, right now. Wow. Wow. And he passed away only three years. I think it was only three or four years later. So maybe he was just a hard-living guy. Who knows? Yeah. So they had some lines that they had to lose for the censors that talked about bed being the best playground rather than Las Vegas. Those lines were lost. And the scene was actually apparently longer in addition to that. And Hitchcock's coverage is such that it allows for some pruning and lots of just clean singles. And so he can, they took a lot of dialogue out. So I, f- I find it interesting in our p- post-Mad Men era, now that I've seen many, many, uh, versions played out of the uh, drinking up your client, you know, having to, <laughs> this guy doesn't, is not the sterling, uh, you know, the, the character for Mad Men you think of from this era that has to drink. This guy probably goes home and complains about to his wife about having to drink with the clients, you know, <laughs> this boss. He's yeah, like, he's we're going to drink. He's arrow. like, oh, yes, of course, sir. Yes, I'll be drinking with you. But you still have to do it because that was the the way they did business back then, right? One of the things that's always struck me about this movie, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but given the low budget of it and the brisk pace, was that these do look like sets. I mean, this it, because it's so underdressed and everything is so smooth and kind of minimalist and square, it just seems, everything feels very, uh, that just looks like a stage wall right there, and I'm sure it is. It's it would have been way worse in color. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always just think of that mid-century into the 60s 
design, architecture, everything is being kind of flat and clean like that, though. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's, but there's something like it's it's just got an extra 10% on this movie <laughs> of, of just yeah. boring flatness, which sure. I think was intentional. And Hitchcock has her now in black lingerie because she's about to commit a crime. He went back and forth whether to use the white or the black or the white or the black, and then he finally decided, I'll use them both, and I'll have her white when we meet her, and then once she steals the money, we'll put her in black. Hmm. Huh. A lot of very simple film language going on, right? Stuff like that, just camera, uh, you know, camera looking at the money, then looking at luggage, and we know exactly what's going on. Just good old-fashioned basic Hitchcock uh, filmmaking. But he said cut into the money a lot. He really mm-hmm. wanted to make sure we knew what she was thinking. And so there are multiple shots showing the money. <laughs> this is where the phrase show me the money came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm imagining Hitchcock actually playing that role somehow. <laughs> I don't think it would have come off quite the same. Do you recall Hitchcock or anybody saying what what the decision was to shoot this in black and white as opposed to color? I'm sure that's been talked about. It was a combination of the of budget stuff and also the fact that he was concerned that he couldn't possibly get away with the blood if it were in color. That's that's what and I was so, thinking. Yeah, so he thought it was a shrewd move. To I mean, be it's able a to break the rules that he was going to break but able to do them in black and white. But also you can sell the blood not just get it past the sensors but sell the blood with in black mm-hmm. and white better simple uh, hershey syrup i just realized case. i just realized in that scene we could see a shower head in that other room i i never thought about that before but foreshadowing in that scene but i bet there we didn't spot a toilet we're saving that for yeah that's the big the big reveal there's so your there you go christmas time there's your christmas plates that's <laughs> the summer fest uh i guess uh, <laughs> that's like Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction right there that's kind that's a, of, yeah. I guarantee that's exactly guess. what that was supposed to be <laughs> I mean isn't that a, isn't that a fact that, that that's where Tarantino stole that moment from must be pretty sure so they put a lot of research into what route she would take to get from Phoenix to the Central Valley of California and meticulously went out and shot all the plates. This was a location day, and it was very hot, apparently, and Hitchcock didn't get out of the car. He directed it all from the car. (laughs) (laughs) But that looks like the hills around Los Angeles, out near Simi Valley, or towards San Bernardino, or I mean towards uh, Santa Barbara. Cars were just giant back then yeah well this in looks Joe like Stefano's it's not early the... draft the cop was supposed to be handsome and charming but uh, Hitchcock said no no we're gonna make him this is not a location sinister. is it no now we're back in the yeah I think we're back in the studio that is Mort Mills the actor's name um, don't know a ton about him. He was in Touch of Evil, though. He played... That's what I was going to say. I, that's yeah. where I recognize him from. What was he, a, a, like a librarian or some kind of an archivist or something? He was in a... 
I'm trying to remember. I can't. Yeah, I just remember he ended up being an ally of of Charlton Heston right. in the movie. Yeah, he had some Oh, kind that of guy. Oh, that guy who goes into the mm-hmm. who do you make for the murder yeah. in the big 7-minute scene. I didn't that's right. Uh, this film shared with um, Touch of Evil not only this guy and Janet Lee but also the production designer. One of ah. the two art directors. One of the two. One was his first first job as an art director, but the other guy had worked on Touch of Evil. Ah. So two movies with motels. And Janet Lee in motels. Yeah, that's right. And she's really good in both movies. Mm-hmm. She's 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 something. I really I really like her. Oh yeah. She's one of my favorite Columbo murderers, Mitch. <laughs> oh, I haven't got to that one yet. No. Okay, <laughs> the saddest the saddest episode of Columbo. I will say that I think. And one of the things when you read about the movie, you realize is that she was incredibly game and she really wanted to do this movie and she wanted to work with Hitchcock and she wanted to make him happy and she wanted to bring everything that she could to the to the set. And he liked her very much because of that. Yeah. They had a really good relationship, as did Tony Perkins and and Hitchcock. But now Tony Perkins and Janet Lee, maybe maybe not as much. As I understand. Is that right? Yeah. Apparently, t- at least Tony Perkins told friends that he didn't care much for Janet Lee. Oh. And it might be she was a little too ambitious for him. He was kind of a playful guy. I don't think he was a careerist the yeah. way she was. And I think it rubbed him the wrong way. I've heard stories about that. Oh, there's a mirror drink. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a couple of mirrors in her apartment too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I got to give three or four drinks by now. So, so there's Bakersfield, Los Angeles turnoff. So she exited at the right exit, correct? She did. Cause she I used to wonder, is Bakersfield. she only exiting? Is she only exiting here because of the cop? She's hoping, she's you know, Gorman. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and they did shoot in Gorman, California. Uh, some of the, some of the scenes, not the, not the car lot, but there are some other scenes along the way that they shot in Gorman, California. Oh, that fantastic feeling when the cop exits behind you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's the best. <laughs> Only apparently he has some sort of a side route to keep an eye on her, or does he just <laughs> luck on luck into finding her again? I don't know. But to Here we are in Bakersfield. <laughs> to state the obvious though, this movie is just a, an experiment in pushing human buttons of that feeling of being watched, that, that guilt feeling, you know, the, like you said, the feeling of the cop behind you and that feeling of relief you have. That's kind of yeah. what this whole movie is. <laughs> well, it's one of, that's one of Hitchcock's favorite sort of way to pull on you a little. He, he hated cops so much that he knew. He, he was very in touch with that feeling, so he knew when to, when to yeah. use that and when not to, yeah. And this movie. So we're at a car lot on Lancashire Boulevard, not far from Universal Studios right now. So this was a... Hitchcock did get out of the car on this day. He was, and they were close enough to the studio that this was a more comfortable shooting day for him. He didn't like to go on location. I just noticed that insert shot of the license plate dollied along with her mm-hmm. to mimic her movement. That's great. Apparently, the the thing that I've never understood about this, and maybe it's because it's the olden days or whatever. She could just take a car with the license plate. She gets the license plate. <laughs> like that's because she clearly, tra- that's what she's thinking. She's like, I need a car with different license plates. So can you go throw down cash and just drive away and that's your license plate now? 
Was that the way it was back then, or is Maybe this that's just how it uh, was back then? Those were simpler times, John. There's the license <laughs> plate was attached to the car, not the person. Unfortunately, the cops, nothing simple. They you can't no. shake them. No, it's just crazy that he finds her. So well, this guy was in a million westerns, no. right, John? He was in a lot of westerns. Uh, uh, I remember him though later in life more. He played uh, first commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and John Sales is eight men out. And he was also in a, a, a Star Trek: The Next Generation episode where he, he and his wife were the only survivors of, on this planet that they had colonized that had been attacked. And I remember him from that. But sure, he was in a lot of westerns, a lot of television over the years. Almost Great everybody voice. in this show, uh, in this movie, was in a lot of television over the years. Even some of the big stars like Janet Lee and Vera Miles. Between actors that were represented by MCA and actors who were under contract at Universal, mm -hmm. this was all a kind of boondoggle for MCA. Hitchcock was, in fact, you know, backing the movie with his own capital, but MCA was also, they had bought Universal, and so they shot at Universal, even though it was a Paramount picture. That way they got rental fees, and so there was a lot of... Uh, I mean, you know, deal making going on. Paramount kind of got taken on this, right? Like they, it was initially supposed to be their movie, but they didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, Barney Balaban and such thought it would be too scandalous. We wouldn't get by with it. Hitchcock's crazy. And then Wasserman negotiated the deal that basically gave Paramount the right. To, uh, I think Paramount put in some money, right? But they were the distributors. They were the distributor and it was a 40-60 split. Hitchcock taking the 60 percent. And he deferred his director's fee. And then so once Paramount was, was paid off, deal. once Paramount was paid off, Hitchcock took ownership, correct? And then MCA had had some rights after that as well. And they were the ones that made all the money. And I, the, think I don't so. think Paramount made any money off this movie, which is But they did have forty percent. Up to the I think up to the point that they got paid off though. I think oh, once right? Yeah, I, that's what I understood. I mean Hitchcock got Troubles like it was apparently troubling how much money to him, how much money he made off this. He was worried about taxes and things because he made so much money off this movie. And then Wasserman, it's it, it was a boon. Yeah, you're right. It was a boon for them. There's another. There's another uh, mirror drink. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. The other thing too was that Hitchcock wanted to do this because he saw American International Pictures making so much money off of low budget films and. That was one of the things that was appealing to him, because yep. if he could make this movie for $800,000, he could compete with that kind of fast money making. And despite the fact that no one was going to be admitted after the movie started and all that business, this movie played at a lot of drive-ins and yep. made a lot of money playing the drive-ins. I, mean, I think there was a lot of artistic jealousy, too. I, I do think, you know, the story has always been that he he felt like he missed the boat with the Abelik and thought that he should have been the one to make that, and that was such a big hit and did things that he hadn't done yet. And I think he was he wanted to make a similar splash as, as far as really shocking the audience the way that film did. So, yeah, there was a lot of him trying to reinvent himself, obviously. I see that the POV shots of the cop are well at least they were are like are direct pov shots you know when when she was walking away the camera dollies back and when she's walking down the way the the camera's dollying and so it feels like 
while the rest of the movie is very sort of objective and kind of in a way just plainly shot with that 50 millimeter and the television crew, that the only times are really jolted is where these direct POV shots where, of course, it's all about being pursued by the by the law and that, that sense of feeling caught or the guilt of doing what you're about to do. But certainly Scorsese and many other directors have taken that approach, you know, to those moving POV shots, thinking like after hours and stuff. It made me think of. You know, it's, it, we were talking about Hitchcock using that officer there for, for you know, different emotional pulls and, and, you know, drawing on our fear of police. That was such a brilliant move there and so simple, too. Is we shoot that wide shot of her seeing the cop walking away in fear we track with her and then we get a big hey from somebody and it just every time mm-hmm. i watch it it gives me a little start cuz it's like that's got to be the cop saying hey to her right mm-hmm. nope it's just the guy with the luggage you know what's Hitchcock fun- uh, read these lines to her off camera too apparently while they were doing all this process work and he was he was reading her imaginings ah okay thinking just something that came to my mind about the the echoes that this movie has rippled into modern movie culture just the shot of that cop with those shades makes me think of like agent smith and the matrix you know that this this authoritarian idea of not being able to see the eyes and just using those mirror shades cool hand luke cool hand yeah, the big yeah. One. i thought that's what you were going to oh, say oh brother where art thou right <laughs> right 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 I always thought this was actually good process work or just really interesting because it really does show the time of day change and it feels very accurate in terms of the look of the lighting. Although, you know, where's that light coming from on her face? Not not so much the lighting on her in the car looking realistic, but just the sort of time of day outdoors. Mm-hmm. I don't see that very often in process, that kind of stuff right there with the twilight Now, we are reading, we're watching this, by the way, I'm giving away the gag, but we're watching this with burned in subtitles. But now that I'm reading this, all I can hear is now Alfred Hitchcock's voice reading this because you said (laughs) he did it off camera. I love this part. Okay, so here. She gets a sly. She gets sly. She gets kind of proud of herself for a second there. Yeah, it's really great. She's feeling like, these guys. I mean, it's a pretty bold move to just put the camera on her for this much time and just have us look at her face and think about what she's thinking Mm -hmm. right now once this rain starts he was very insistent that the sound mix be pretty abrasive that the windshield wipers are loud and the rain hitting everything is loud and that it makes it unpleasant that close-up of her right there is the first time I think we're not on a 50 millimeter. That's that's a longer lens to get that shot. Yeah. Well, I think now they're, yeah, now they're just in the, they're not using the process shots anymore, right? They're just using the flashlights. Yeah, that looks like poor, poor man's process right there. Yeah, poor I mean. man's process, which is great. And, you know, here's another mundane thing we all know. We all know this one, driving, getting caught in the rain, can't barely see the road, only the few stripes at a time in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. And then this iconic sign. 
Yeah. And this was apparently one of the early night shoots exteriors. And the first AD, it was his first time working for Hitchcock, and he was very nervous. And they got there and got ready to shoot this stuff. And there was a great big old moon up in the sky. He hadn't figured out where the moon was going to be. And Hitchcock called him over about that. And so the DP got a flag and a couple of grips and they moved this black flag all night covering the moon so that <laughs> it wouldn't show up in this shot wow so there is a flag somewhere there knocking out the the moon so at this point in the film if, it's, if you're an audience member general audience member 1960 what do you think you're seeing like to me it's very hard to um imagine that they're, they're they think that they're watching like a film noir. At this point, they know they're watching a horror movie already. I mean, besides probably having heard some things here and there, my mom tells me she was completely surprised by this movie. She so was my mom. My mom told me that same story. Yeah, she she um she just went to a movie every Saturday. It didn't matter what it was, and this happened to be one one Saturday, and she did not like it. <laughs> she did not like the feeling it gave her, but she didn't have any idea what she was going to see. And uh, a mirror, take a drink. There, there mm-hmm. it is. So I, just, I just think, I think it's interesting. John, I would think that maybe you're right. It's a film noir. We know Hitchcock makes thrillers. And so it's about this girl who's stolen this money. And is she going to have a relationship with this guy that she meets? Because yeah. they they do move kind of closer together over the course of this. And maybe it's a good thing that there aren't 100% sparks with John Gavin. Right. Maybe this is going to be the relationship of the movie. Yeah, something I, mean, I read in that Truffaut Hitchcock thing was that the one of the misdirects was that they thought that maybe this Bates Norman Bates character would be the character that would sort of give her an insight to make her want to change her mind and go, you know, like that maybe the idea of giving back the money was uh, and that that was that he was he was his character's function was just as a conscience is what they thought. That's Jimmy, interesting because I would I would I would picture it if I was you know, steeped in film noir, and that's how I thought stories were going to go, and I thought this story was going to go. Like, this would be, you know, she would probably be played by Elizabeth Scott about 10 years earlier, and this guy would find out she stole the money and use it against her. And then, you know, that's that's what a film noir, that's the film noir storyline I picture. Right, I know he yeah. seems like a good guy, but he finds that money, and he knows he's got something on her now. You know, that's that's the noir story. I don't, I don't know about, that's not a noir story to have, oh, the guy's got a conscious, he's going to. But maybe that is what the naive 1960 uh, audience might have thought. Yeah, there was a mention of that in that conversation that he had with Truffaut. And, and the, so obviously we're getting Anthony Perkins here as Norman Bates. Um, great actor. Big Broadway actor mostly up to this point, right? I'm trying to think. What, it was on the beach. Was and it way on more the beach? of a heartthrob than I realized. The girls yeah. were crazy about him. And he yeah. was not happy about that, that it was, <laughs> he was didn't want to be seen as a, you know, tab hunter kind of. Well, uh, remember that really Hitchcock, Hitchcock also, he, he he knew that he was uncomfortable around women, right? So he sent him home, let him go off and audition or not audition, but rehearse for a play during some uh, well, during shower scene and when the right. when all the strippers or whatever you want to call them or the the yeah. the Body new double was around. Yeah. But I just, to me, his his physicality is so remarkable. Like, if you, I, I recently watched Psycho two for the first time. We don't have to get into that, 
But, you know, he's, uh, what, 23 years older in that movie, and yet when he's turned around, when you're looking at him from behind in Psycho 2, he looks like he's still 20, you know? Then you, so, yeah, his physicality is so distinct and, yeah, and he, it's never changed. He's got a very distinct body shape, and, and one of the things I've always been envious about him is his shoulders, like from his neck to his shoulders, they go straight out instead of slumping down. You know, that's the right. thing that you can always identify his silhouette. and. Uh, <laughs> Which made for a challenge when they needed a woman to double for him, so to speak. Right. They had to find somebody that had the closest to those shoulders. Of course, there's birds on the walls, bird pictures. There's a bird motif that runs all through this thing. Yeah, I mean, the city is Phoenix, Arizona, and her name is Marion Crane, and yeah. Her name was Mary Crane in the book, correct? That's right. Yeah. So the the Crane part came from the book. Yeah, they changed and it because they the legal team found two Mary Cranes living in Phoenix. Yeah. And so they said that they needed to change that name. Now, I've never read the book. The book also starts in Phoenix. No, I don't think so. No, I, I think I that the book, that was Joe Stefano wanted to start with Mary, and that was his big idea. Oh, I see. So I believe the book starts with Norman, but I'm not I'm not sure. See, j- just like only having seen Psycho 2 for the first time after all these years, I kind of never wanted anything else besides the movie. Uh, I, I've thought about reading Psycho many times, and it just I'm okay with just the movie, I think. So that shot of the house with the clouds moving behind it was a process shot that Saul Bass came up with. Hmm. A way to make it a little scarier. They tried models. They tried all sorts of different things. And then he realized this, actually, the simplest trick was the most effective one. So there's part of his pictorial consultant credit. How did they do it? I mean, when you say a process shot, is that a... It's just a superimposition with the with the optical printer. That's just a stock. He said he thought it was even stock footage okay. of that backdrop. Okay. There. See? Mm-hmm. Of course, we're getting uh, the introduction to the concept of mother here as well. Yeah. That process shot then giving us uh, a little bit more foreboding about that. I think one of the things that gets that's interesting here as we move into this scene is that there's been a lot of coverage of these two characters in profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we move into this, supper it's really interesting to watch how hitchcock moves the camera in side which character he gives a, a more traditional kind of full face shot and then which character he continues to keep this weird profile distance from you'll see it in a second. we should point out right here before we lose it that we're getting two profiles of norman actually we're getting a real distinct reflection back there I don't oh, yeah. think that's another, accidental. Yeah, drink another mirror. Drink. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's a car- that's that's a little foreshadowing. Yeah, I know. think so too. Yeah. yeah. So there, we're kind of we've come we've come much more inside. I gotta say, it's it says a lot for Marion how she treats Norman. I think. Like she's 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 a good egg, right? Like, right. 
I, I would definitely be like, dude, I'm going to bed, man. I'm not going to have dinner with you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a jerk or anything, but man, if I'm at a hotel and some, some dude's like, uh, you want to have dinner with me? I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. She's just so nice to him. She's very kind to him and understanding. She's really All listening part of the to the strategy, him. right? We got to make her as absolutely sympathetic as we possibly can. Well, that last shot, we get the Nor- we get, I would say, kind of a Norman POV shot there of her listening to him, right? And she's really listening. I think she actually cares. Although we get the first clues with all the stuffed birds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should probably be a red flag. Yeah. Something is not quite right. And those inserts weren't in the first cut of the movie, and Joe Stefano was very concerned that they weren't going to get to see the birds. Mm. Hitch- Hitchcock reassured him. He said, oh. Also, if someone, there. There. if someone asks you to join them for dinner and then they don't eat, also weird. Also a red flag. I don't think you... Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that seems not trustworthy to me. Like, do you just like watching people eat, or what's the strategy here, bud? <laughs> so I think these angles are really weird. Yeah. As a, we don't think oh. of them as complementary angles back and forth between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the previous scene with lots of coverage was in the bank which had a very traditional tv coverage and this looks totally different and it gets weirder this is just the beginning i mean now you got me looking at this space they have between them his on the on the left of the Uh frame here and hers on the right and she has a an illuminated lamp and he has a not lit candle. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that's just, I don't know what that means, but somehow to me, he has a dead bird. She has, she has porcelain birds, right? I don't know. There's something different. Just the juxtaposition. Hitchcock has, has some weird obsession with lamps and uh, there's web pages devoted to it. But uh, I was watching Dial M for Murder recently and realized just what a fetish he's got for using lamps in strange ways. Oh, yeah, North by Northwest in the room the first time right. Grant goes out to the house. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we meet James Mason. But look at all this negative space on both mm-hmm. shots. Yeah. Like how far they're cramped over to the side of the frame and how much open space. Is. Oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's getting a little wider, too, I think. Did that, didn't it get a little wider with Norman there? It's interesting. I feel like it did. Well, he sat well, back. He sat back. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just always think so, about yeah, what, I, what are we saying about the distance between them here when you see shots like this? It looks well. Here's what's here's where it gets interesting. So Hitchcock's going to now start closing the distance between the two of them. Right. But it's it happens to be when they're she's becoming more uncomfortable with him, right? Because she's been very nice and he's been pretty normal, somewhat normal up to this point. But she's starting to wonder what is up with this dude. And that's when he starts closing the distance, which I find intriguing. And she's thinking about her guilt. We're in our private traps. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing that's starting to happen. Sure, I guess. I yeah, don't think she's right. thinking it's about him right thing. now. She's thinking about what she did. <laughs> the camera is coffee table height, you know, or seeing just the tops of both of their knees. You know, the camera is just below their eye level. Yeah, but their eye level is along the same spot in the frame in that top third. Yep. Well, 
So here it gets really weird. Look at that. So we <laughs> that's not these are not what you would expect as complimentary shots. He's he's almost full profile and she's three quarters, if not almost. You can see every you see her whole face. Isn't but, that weird? We're inside with her and we're outside with him. But isn't her eye line looking at that bird too? Like when I when they cross cut between them, she's not looking at Norman to me. She's looking at that bird. <laughs> Am I crazy? Her eye line would be more towards us, I would think, with Norman, but I don't, I don't know. But it's I mean, the mo- I think I'm looking at the bird. It's the moment she mentioned his mother, though, and then, of course, you know, the scene changes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, in just in terms of directing, you know, Hitchcock was a pioneer. Well, not necessarily a pioneer, but one that you study when you think of if you've got a scene with two people talking and you've got to somehow elucidate the subtext. How can you use the camera to, to change the perception of the scene? And certainly this, this scene is an obvious example of that. And he's, he's so threatened by that bird, which I think is really interesting. It's a low angle, which usually creates a sense of a character being dominant because you're looking up at them. Unfortunately, there's something even higher in the frame, which is that bird hanging over him that, you know, it looks mm-hmm. like it's going to get him. Well, he has somebody watching over him, right? Yeah. And that's he, he's under someone's thumb, so maybe that's part of what he's saying here with the shot. Oh, I think so. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that owl is like the cop with the sunglasses, you know. There's always <laughs> somebody coldly watching you. I just want to it's say, just, too, that Norman is really good at taxidermy for just an amateur taxidermist. He's been at it that, for a while. Yeah. I bet you that's not easy to get that owl to splay its wings out like that. And... <laughs> okay, now we Uh-oh. really changed something. Uh-oh. Yeah, don't talk about putting mom in a home. That's not good. They've even moved her shot a little bit. They, they did. Mm-hmm. They finally moved the, her shot. The eye line's well, moving in just a little bit. He's moving in on her. So she's a little bit, she's a little back offish here. Yeah, she's scared. <laughs> yeah, the the whole anatomy of this conversation, I've never really taken a, I mean, obviously watched this movie many times, but taking the scene apart like this is really interesting to me. I usually just get caught up in it. And then, yeah, and then when you were talking about how 1960 audiences would interpret this movie, their their head, the wheels are turning in people's heads right now. Like, what is going on? What is this movie? <laughs> so, somebody's leaning over to their friend going, what does psycho mean again? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're starting to find out the definition of that weird word. And he's really dominating the frame now. Mm-hmm. He's been so reduced with, within it that yeah. now he is... Yeah, he's whole scene. He's actually left of center. You know, there's no talk space. He pushed into her space there. Now he's back. Of course, when he's leaning forward, he's he's kind of mom, right? He's kind of mother when he's leaning forward. I know he's not literally, but he seems to be speaking for her. And then when he leans back, he says, of course, I've thought about it myself. He's like, whoops, I'm Norman again. Mm Mm-hmm. Iconic line. Mm-hmm. Which lands on her. You know, she went a little mad when she stole that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, even if you're a um, 
shrewd reader of films in 1960, you might think that's who he's, that's what he's talking about. And I guess he is a little bit within the subtext, but you might think, oh, she's, she is about to learn something here. She's about to make the right choice. Of course, you're not far enough in the movie for someone to be <laughs> making this choice yet. Dominant, subdominant now. Mm-hmm. She's, she's got the power. And we're looking down on him. With still another creepy bird over her shoulder, though. It looks like it's about to peck on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. I guess interesting that the movie that he would make after this was The Birds. Yeah, I always wondered, like, <laughs> always wondered if that somehow had a tie-in, but I don't yeah. think it did. It was not the movie he wanted to make next, initially, so. Hmm. It's definitely Marnie, right? Was supposed to be the next movie. You don't see characters pop up into frames like that in Hitchcock movies very often. Hmm. But you do see them eat candy. Candy corn. <laughs> it's all it's always candy corn, right? I believe like that was Bruno in I Strangers think... on a Train. Is... Oh yeah. I think it was Perkins' idea to, to do the candy corn, right? It was, yeah. It and was. that's very bird-like, right? Pecking on corn all day. Okay, so now what is the 1960s audience think? This is where it's like, wait a minute. They've never seen this before, right? Now this is a different kind of movie altogether. Yeah. The, the general audience that and hasn't seen those. it's an erotic those. painting that covers the whole, too, which yep. is just great. See, this had to be, I guarantee you some people walked out right here. And now we're just paying attention to the movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's fun. <laughs> it's like, well, what's he going to do? It's just, you know, look at that. Yeah, that you little that? dolly move. Now we know he's going to do something with that move, right? We know he's not He's not just passively looking through a peephole and then going home. Yeah. That dolly move tells us he's going to do something. It's, the, it's, the, equivalent no of, what... it's the equivalent of the screenwriting term, he sets his jaw. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What do we think he's going to do here? I mean, he's just going to go tell mom. I don't. I don't. I. W- I just keep trying to put myself in the in the mindset of someone watching this yeah. movie back then. So this hard. is the first time we've been in the house, of course. So now we're That's seeing right. this house. Yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of seeing this for the first time. I mean, it wasn't. We weren't brought in as if it was an old dark house. It was just a very deliberate, quick. Now we're here. Right, and he doesn't uh, go get drunk like. In the book. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like here in this section, if the audience might have felt a little lost at sea. Like, why did we just watch him go home and sit down at a table? Why are we seeing her now? You know, she just made a note ter- toward up. That's that's active, I guess. But then she's going to just take a shower. Well, now they're going to be wondering something what's gonna... that they've never seen before well, in here. an American movie. 
We're going to see a toilet, first toilet in an American movie, and oh my gosh, they even flush it. Hmm. And that was a big deal. And you didn't even see the turlet and all in the family years later. But is the, was the implication of her tearing that up and flushing it is that she's changed her mind? Or She has. Yeah. She's changed mm-hmm. her mind. So yeah. the shower, gonna, you know, to state the obvious, the shower is this sort of cleansing yep. moral thing, thing that she's doing. Yep. Exactly. And she enjoys it. I mean, I, I guess you could say, well, maybe Jantley just makes these faces when water splashes on her. But to me, yeah. she enjoys. She's, no, she's really enjoying it. She's going to do the right thing. And she's yeah. happy. And the bathroom yeah. is very white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of our color symbolism, you know, she's shed the black bra and now she's in this very bright, white, cleansing, baptizing water, which is what makes what happens so shocking. So now we're getting into the controversial Saul Bass territory. The, the light was so bright that uh, they had to black that actress's face because <laughs> the white light kept exploding the face. There. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, her face is... So the blurry shots with the nudity are a body double, correct? Yeah. Janet Lee says that was her torso for mm-hmm. that one shot mm-hmm. uh, with her stomach. Just a quick funny note in Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, the the joke is that Barry Levinson brings him the here's your paper, here's your paper. <laughs> and then the, the new, newspaper ink going down the drain. Fan <laughs> <laughs> of the Paradise gets pinned with a toilet plunger against the wall. Yeah. So how long? How many days did so this take? There's to shoot? a breast. There is. A, oh yeah. There, there are two yeah. two breasts, and this was a, and then that shot they had to trim. Because mm-hmm. and that was the body double uh, because you saw her bare bottom and they said no 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 you got to cut that out. So there's the Hershey's. And then we're about to get one of the trickier, trickier moments of the movie as we do this match dissolve here and into a still shot. So that is actually a still photograph that's being turn and then there's a match cut to it i think is how they did it mm-hmm. oh for the drop of water that drunk now yeah, yeah right the there and you get don't you get just a flicker i always think there's a little flicker of the eye and i know alma reville hitchcock insisted yeah, she little, blinked there was a teeny little move of the eye right there but there was yeah. another take where yeah where she saw her throat move yeah. alma spotted it and they didn't they hadn't spotted it and then we've got a trick. There was a a tricky little masked. Of course, the idea of this shot I've always you know interpreted as the camera doesn't know what to do now. <laughs> now that mm-hmm. she's dead, what, what am I supposed to look at? Yeah, I do feel and sort of adrift. Uh, I guess I'll go see the money. Look at the money, and then then we get Norman bringing us into his movie. And we cut way outside, too. Yeah. Here's an iconic shot, that yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to say, you know, if you're watching this and you don't think Norman, you think Ma- Mother's the one that did the killing and Norman's 
Oh yeah, he's cool under I pressure. Think they, <laughs> I think they sell it pretty well for sure. And outside of once he takes that hand down from his mouth, he's like goes about his business. He's you'd have to. I would think you'd have to wonder if he's had to do this before, right? Maybe that oh, was yeah, the that's idea. What I think, yeah. He's shocked by it every time. Of course, you're going to be shocked by it every time. But yet, you know where the mop is. <laughs> you know, you got to do this every once in a while for mom. <laughs> I just think it's great how how little dialogue there is in this movie. You know, yeah. Like there, when people talk in Hitchcock movies, they talk, but then they shut up and they don't talk for long periods of time, which is just great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's actually. It's been a while since I've seen this, so just seeing him come out with the mop, you know, that's great. (laughs) Got work to do. Yeah. And we frame up the money. You got the paper and the money in the foreground there. Mm -hmm. We still remember it. He has no idea. Probably, probably wondering if he's going to find it, if we're still thinking about the money. Yeah, but so there's a suspense engine you know, another yeah. one. Like, it has a lot of these great suspense engines. Which is good. I mean, obviously, Hitchcock is the master of that. But also, because there's kind of not a lot of movie. You know, this this could not, <laughs> it could be a not a lot of movie here. You could easily have this movie uh, made by someone lesser than Hitchcock, and it would be very boring. You'd have these shock moments, and then what in between? Like, if William Castle made this, right? Yeah. Uh, then yeah. What's, what's in between those moments? Well, Hitchcock knew that you got to fill those moments with something, even if it's just the thought of mon- the money. So I believe this was uh, a stunt double. Yes, they said these that were those three you're days. You're not going to see her anyway. Yeah, three days where Janet Lee wasn't there, and he and they shot all this stuff. I guess they had to be very precise about blocking and movement to make sure no nudity, sh- you know, mm-hmm. would get shown. This scene was uh, trimmed for certain countries. I think England, they made them cut this. Hmm. I, I got to say, the last time I watched bloody this... Hands. So the bloody hands really stuck out to me the last time I watched this, and I wondered... What's wh- why that shot? Why this moment? And I- I- is it foreshadowing? Is it kind of telling the audience, "Hey, guess what? He's the killer," yeah, um, in a really probably. subtle way? I mean, you can read it that way for sure. I don't know why I never thought about it before, but just recently I thought, "Why did he pick to, you know, decide to shoot those hands that way, and then have this whole moment of washing his hands before he cleans up after the killing?" Yeah, oh. Hitchcock apparently had a fetish for uh, cleaning bathrooms, and he would say that if he used a bathroom, right when he when he, you would never know he, he had been in there when he was finished. Okay, so <laughs> I have I have the same thing. I'm I'm the weirdo that takes uh, paper towels and wipes down the countertop in public bathrooms. I can't. I, help I've it. done that too, John. <laughs> if I'm with people you. leave all that water everywhere, it drives me crazy. I'm like, well, just wipe it up. Yeah, the amount of time spent in with this business, it just must have driven the censors crazy. Yeah. 
this is not what you're supposed to be doing in respectable movies. Well, of course, part of the part of the strategy, and many many people have used this strategy, but I, I assume Hitchcock innovated this uh, way of dealing with the censors was to put in things he knew would get cut in order to appease them. Right. So I know there were a few things that he knew he wasn't going to get away with, but he left them in the first cut that he'd sent to the MPAA or, or whoever it was at the time. Uh, they weren't called the MPA or were they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, it was, it the was MP- just before was the, the ratings. Off- it was the Hayes office, but right. the MPAA gives the, yeah, gives the code. So he, knowing that, you know, if you throw in something, you know, you won't get, you can ask to keep the other thing or, they might not even notice the other thing because the one thing that you knew was going to get cut is bad, much worse. And I know he did that a few times. I know a lot of people have done that over the years, including sometimes people not even cutting the thing. That they're told to cut, sending it back, and them not noticing. Well, that's it that the time. case with the shower scene. Is he didn't yeah. take anything out, and he resubmitted right. it a couple of times, and different people saw different things each time he submitted it. Yeah, sometimes the sometimes the people that saw nudity the first time didn't see it the second time, right. and vice versa, which is very right. bizarre. But they did see the bare bottom, and that probably was, he probably did figure he wouldn't get away with that. Right. But yeah. he was in trouble right from the get-go, because they were like, well, she's being killed in a shower. There's going to be nudity, isn't there? You know, <laughs> Can you take the nudity out? <laughs> like, she's not going to shower with her clothes on. And without the nudity, this is one of those cases where, you know, this is a, a classic case of nudity that has an impact, you know. A lot of times people ask, well, why does there need to be a nudity in the movie? Well, sometimes you need it. You need to be, the character does need to be that vulnerable in that particular scene. That's the whole idea. Where are you more vulnerable than in the shower? Well, not getting into the shower when you stub your robe on, you know, Yeah. Uh, but actually in the shower. So, But he has ginned up the eroticism with him being a peeping Tom. And mm-hmm. there's a sex violence juxtaposition going on here as well. It's not just nudity. I mean, she is definitely right. sexualized in in at least in Norman's eyes and in the eyes of the audience, because it forces us to watch her take her clothes off as well. So he's, he's playing a oh, for wicked sure. game. No, I'm certainly not saying Hitchcock wasn't up to something. I'm just saying there's this moment, there's certain scenes where just the impact of that, of getting killed in the shower alone without all of that is right. well, yeah, still got to be. And if you think about it is since this is the first film that's even featured a toilet, but of course, since nudity was not permitted it like it is today, just the implication of, you know, men or women taking a bath or a shower in Hollywood movies before that, there was always a sort of unspoken erotic component to that used right. very effectively in the Hayes Code that he's definitely capitalizing on, you know, more than us modern audiences could even understand of like taking the, oh, they're in the shower and then, whoa, wait a second, you know, like <laughs> that's supposed to be subtext and not seen. I don't want to see this actually happening. He uh, missed the money, too, didn't he? Money's still in there, I think. I think so, yeah. No, he, go, he goes back to get it. Yeah, he goes back for it. Yeah. Again, another nice little moment. Just having a car pass by. The simple act of a car passing by. Mm-hmm. And what does that do? That makes us susp- that makes my heart stop for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very weird. Right. Now we're, we're in Norman's movie now completely. Yep. And even though he's cleaning up after the murder of a woman that I liked... Well, what I love too I'm is on just side now? On, a, on a low budget level too, it was literally just a, a, a passing light and a sound effect, you know, exactly. <laughs> we exactly. just, we hung on Norman. We don't need a, a wide shot of a car going by. So by the fact that the money's now in the back of the car, there must be people in the audience who are losing their minds. 
now because yeah. <laughs> they got nothing to hang on to. Right. It's not going to be about the money either. Hey, remember <laughs> a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Day for Night on the James Bond podcast uh, uh-huh. that I was on, and I said that you could sell Day for Night in black and white easier than in color. I think this is a good example of that. Yeah, you yeah. rest your case right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, suddenly, no, no, the black flag is gone now. Suddenly it's a full moon. Yeah. Must be, right? Yeah. We're getting this much light at night. Of course, I can't remember. I think I said also when we were talking about that, that I always assumed that it, day for night shots meant it was really early in the morning. Yeah. Just yeah. about to be dawn. Well, that can't be here. She was just going to bed. This is like 10 o'clock at night at the latest. Yeah. That's like a post-production zoom right there, like like a, an optical zoom. I don't think that's the camera, that, that push into the car. I think you're right. Jay, you're right, Mitch. This must have drove people crazy. Like, wait, what? Every the entire movie I was watching for that period of time is literally. And here it is. Sunk. I mean, for me, this is <laughs> just this is my maybe my favorite moment in the whole movie mm-hmm. when it stops sinking. <laughs> <laughs> and you're and again you're you're scared for Norman. Yeah, yeah. You're so bizarre. How did he get us to t- be on his side all of a sudden? Yeah. Because his mom's crazy. His mom is the titular psycho. But Hitchcock also just understands that there's some part of our reptilian brain that, you know, automatically responds to this the the fear of getting caught. Uh, no, no, it's the ghoulish. It's the ghoulish audience member that he loved to exploit. Yeah, you know the the um, Thelma Ritter in Rear Window, not wanting to see. Oh, I, you know, she wants to see everything, and then when she's offered to see the head that was buried, no, I would never. Yeah, he wants, <laughs> that's what he wants us to to. He wants to point a finger at us and say, see, you love this too. Sam Loomis. Is Loomis another bird reference? Mm-hmm. Like a loon? I don't know. I don't know. Makes me just think of Loomis Burkhead in 1941. Halloween. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So look at this. We've got a nice pull back through the hardware store. And here... We're going to get Vera Miles, the great Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. Under contract to Hitchcock and uh, the woman who just wouldn't take no shit off of Hitchcock. Hmm. It's, it's or, pretty or amazing John when you read about her. Or, yeah, or John or anybody. She or really was something. She, she, she was, was a, very vocal about <laughs> not ta- taking shit off of people, and, and she was vocal about abusive things that happened to her on sets of John Ford movies, with specifically with Ward Bond and so on. She just didn't care. She was not subservient, you know, female movie star at the time. And since she was under contract to Hitchcock, he was able to save some money by using her in this picture. And then we get Martin Balsam. Mm -hmm. The highest paid actor in the movie was Anthony Perkins, who got $40,000, which was ironically the amount of money that Marion stole. Right. (laughs) Now, that, this is a very unusual, you know, that introduction of Martin Balsam. What are you Bringing him in so close to camera? Yeah. Yeah. And is that, again, this idea of, of, of law authority being this judger, the, somebody who's yep. breathing down your neck?
you know, he's there's something kind of sinister about him. I mean, he's likable, he's professional, but he's no pushover. Right. He would have been fresh off of 12 Angry Men when he made this movie, right? People would have gone, he's that one guy. Probably, yeah. I can't remember when 12 Angry Men came out. It was like and the fact 50, that, 58, I think. And the fact that he's he's so assertive about your girlfriend stole the money, it does not endear him to anybody. Mm-hmm. His camera angle's lower. You know, you're talking about the power dynamic. You know, you're, we're yeah. looking up on him just ever so subtly. I always think it's interesting how Hitchcock will, if he prefers that 50 millimeter lens because it approximates the human eye, he still puts the camera usually a little low or a little high. You know, it's usually not at eye level the mm-hmm. way that Howard Hawks would put the camera. Yeah. It always makes everybody just a little larger than life. Yep. Well, it's and interesting because that's the old, not to get too um, into that, but, you know, Yosujiro Otsu had that style where he always put the camera at the sitting level, yeah, right? The they called level. it the, the tatami uh, right. level. Right. Yep. And it was the idea was to approximate you sitting there <laughs> kind of watching the uh, proceedings. Right. And and the audience member is sitting there. I don't know if that has anything to do with what Hitchcock's doing, but it just makes me think and about that. Ozu also used exclusively a 50 millimeter. <laughs> it's a montage and we're not losing but he's not wasting any time yeah. well it's funny because we're going <laughs> back boom, to the boom, film boom, noir we're done three three shots that, and we're that's yeah, like a that's it 60 second film noir mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the My kind of montage. Is, <laughs> we are not getting any question answer detective work here not he, until we get to the is he eating movie. candy again what is this yeah okay candy corn candy corn i think it's so funny he crawls across to get out the other side of the car door. That is weird. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah. Why did he do that? That is well, strange. Well, he, did, he didn't have to open the door into the camera and come out and come around and well, go through it around the I just watched, yeah. I was just watching John Houston's The Asphalt Jungle the other night, and there's a moment where they do, like they all get out the driver's side. There's like three guys in the front seat, and they all get out the driver's side because huh. it's camera side, and they just wanted to come right into the shot and move across. Yeah, and, and this is the opposite. It's just a blocking thing. I mean, people don't close doors in movies either. We just have to, those are those things that we have to accept that they, we do for reasons that. Or have rear view, mem- rear view or, mirrors on a lot yeah, of cars. Yeah. Still yeah. Ha- they still have the little thing, but not the rear view right? Nobody says yeah. goodbye when they hang up the phone. Exactly. Yeah. Movie stuff. Just accept it. Be grateful for it, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want to watch somebody get out of the car and yeah. lock it and walk around. <laughs> <laughs> Arbogast. Arbogast. That's a great I name. I do think um, this is so great, like just the paranoia of poor Norman mm-hmm. and this little stammer that starts to creep in. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock knows to kind of pull it back. He's not doing anything really unusual here, just, you know, two shots and basic coverage. At least it seems like it. There's another mirror, by the way. Another mirror. And I would, I would say that we still get a little, we get more of Arbogast's face than we do of Norman's. He's he's mm-hmm. almost in profile. That's true, yeah. The idea, partially maybe that he's hiding part of himself, that we're never able to see his full self. I kind of sure. think so, yeah. yeah. 
but it's not it, there's it's not traditional shot reverse shot you know hmm. what i mean yep like the the angles are really interesting and they're th- that one's a dirt there's a, a dirty single but mostly they're clean singles yeah But this would probably be one of those scenes that they said they just, they, you know, rifled through on a TV schedule. I am noticing, again, the negative space for Arborgast is filled with a light, lighted lamp, and for Norman, it's a dark room. Lamp I don't know. There. I just keep, I keep yeah. noticing these. Well, I think that's what makes the movie so interesting, given that it was made so inexpensively. It doesn't mean you don't have a great director. Look at that. That's, oh, yeah. I that's, love a, this tr- that's a tricky shot. Yeah. Well, I love it too because it's uh, <laughs> he's so full of shit here, right? And pretty obviously. Oh, mm, uh huh. Mm, he's supposed oh, to yeah, look like mm. a bird beak too, I think. You yeah. Know? Oh, maybe. Yeah. And the cutting has gotten faster. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I hate to say, like the lighting contrast. You know, it actually looks like yeah. the the fill light. See, look how noir yeah, 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 yeah. that it's got noir-y. the lighting yeah. has changed. Interesting. Wow, it's really changing. I think it's making it's making new balsam arbogast yeah. seem a little bit menacing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's weird. Are, are they trying to make him menacing? Yeah. Oh, now look, now we're looking down on him. Yep. And we're looking up at Norman. So who's winning the fight? Maybe, maybe, maybe Norman's starting to win, or he's going to. You know, it's it's is it a, is it a foreshadowing thing? It's like, oh well, maybe arbogast is the. Mm-hmm. He's got him pretty well figured out here, but he's not going to win in the end. Yeah, a good lesson in just how high you place your camera in relation to the actor Whoa. says a lot about the power dynamics. Look now we're that. back down. Mm-hmm. Now we're back, we went, back we went very low on Norman again. Yeah. In the Rebello book, they say that the first time they shot this scene, the whole scene. They covered it. I don't know if they covered it in a master or whether they just had it on one one actor, but they did the entire scene flawlessly. And Hitchcock called cut and the whole crew applauded. Hmm. And then they went in for coverage. But yeah. Cool. Yep. Mitch, you mentioned the stammer earlier. Yeah. I've always read this now. It's easy to say, oh, people stammer when they're starting to get figured out or when they're lying. But I always kind of read this as something that Norman had to get over at some point, and it rears its head every once in a while. Like yeah. it's a natural stutter that he had. Oh, yeah, which, I think that's probably true. Yeah, Which could have been something that came down, you know, had another thing that Mother came down on him about, you know, and just, I, I don't know, it just makes me think of things like that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of depth to him as a character, just revealed through performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this ain't gelling. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they say in that stupid, yeah, that's the psycho remake. And instead of aspic, they say jello. Oh. One of the few it's line all, changes. Uh, there's all kinds of dumb line changes. <laughs> was it William H. Macy who played this part? It was. Yeah. 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 It was Vince Vaughn as Norman. Yeah. Have not seen that since. Ian Hache as a dreadful movie. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> only interesting. Julian Moore. Only interesting is thing right. is that uh, 
Christopher Doyle shot it and did some really weird stuff with overexposure. And, you know, there was some experimentation with doing it in color. But other than that, yeah. I assume you caught that little tell where he didn't want to go into cabin one. Yeah. He stopped, and he, so he's going to go change the sheets in the other other rooms. But didn't want to go into cabin one. Wasn't there a line change in the Van Zant Psycho where where they changed Julian Moore says I got to go get my Walkman or something instead of I forget what Vera Miles says later but yeah. as if so as to not date the you know <laughs> to update the movie which is now completely, ri- completely ridiculous <laughs> now I heard I'm not going to get into it but I heard Gus Van Zant tell the story of why he chose to do that and it was actually interesting um, not a fan of that movie at all but when he explained why he chose to do it. Um, I believe it was on Mark Maron's podcast once. So seek that out if you're interested in hearing his uh, reasoning. Now here we've got a couple of very traditional overs, but they're mm-hmm. they're pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. One's looking up. And the other one's kind of looking down on Arbogast. I just like that Anthony Perkins is wearing that jet black shirt. Mm-hmm. Looks good. And, you know, definitely contrast with Arbogast, who's not being portrayed as a good guy in some sort of opposite in white or anything, but there's enough of a difference that they pop in a black and white movie is in, in ways that are interesting. I think that was the sweater that Perkins wanted to wear, too. I think hmm. he, he chose some of his wardrobe. Now, let's talk about this shot. How far over he is in the frame here. Mm-hmm. It almost looks, it almost makes you think a little bit about Marion's last moment for some reason. The other shot that we've seen in this movie so far that had that much negative space. I don't know why, but. Yeah, it's, it, he shot this. This is 185, right? So this is, um, mm-hmm. it's not the old ratio which the TV series would be using. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, there was talk they got so nervous about whether the movie was going to work that Hitchcock even considered chopping it in half and doing a two-parter of his TV show. Oh, wow. He was really nervous towards the end. And Bernard Herman said he'd never seen him like it before. <laughs> but wasn't it, wasn't it kind of Herman that helped appease a lot of the fears with the music? Yeah, you because know? there were certain things Hitchcock wanted Herman to do, and Herman said he just ignored him. <laughs> And just did what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. this was, and it, and in this case, Hitchcock was grateful and paid him a bunch of extra money. He did, yeah. uh, unsolicited, just gave him more money, which is very bizarre. Hmm. Uh, but their relationship wouldn't last much longer. No. So look at this. We're just, boy, just point it and shoot. Yeah. No mm-hmm. move. No movement. No blocking. No nothing. Just here we go. Well, I think we're supposed to start feeling like we're in a normal movie again. I think we're following this detective guy around. We know these guys. Yeah. I, I now we're getting lulled a little bit, I this think. This is our new protagonist, and uh, we feel like, you know, we're in, we're in a detective movie or something, and this is all going to mm-hmm. be figured out, and everything's going to be okay. Yep, but we don't like him, though, I don't think. I don't think we like no, this guy. But, but we're, it's familiar. That's what I'm... Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how people... Maybe some people are okay with the character. Maybe they want to see a detective, but he he's basically telling us right now, ah, I'm going to get this thing all wrapped up, and... Everything's going to be okay and normal, like you're saying, Todd. And and I think, yeah, I think he's totally lulling us 
into forgetting that we're watching a crazy movie that we've never <laughs> seen before. It's a pan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barry Sonnenfeld would be so. Yeah. Owen <laughs> Roisman wouldn't be happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there he goes out the other side of the car. Again. This is his thing. It's his idiosyncrasy. <laughs> Maybe that door doesn't work. Have we seen him use Could that door? Be. <laughs> That's yeah. always a good thing. You can always throw a little little something like Look that. This in is there, a dude. wonder, man. We're panning back. We got a lot of mileage done with one camera position for that. They must have needed to get a lot of stuff done this day. Again, though, we're being lulled, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah right. It's traffic. It's completely insignificant traffic. But again, we audience members are so confused. Now we're with him. <laughs> right. Like, what? But then I we're thought, starting to I thought we were some... with Norman. We're starting to see some things, though, that are now building the suspense. They're yes. now starting to tell us things might be happening. Uh, we're still not sure yet. But before when we saw birds, shortly afterwards, we saw yeah, somebody get brutally didn't murdered. didn't turn out so. well, did it? I mean, what was, is this the origin of Don't Go Into the House? Like, because I, f- I feel like some audience members are thinking, oh, yeah, don't do this, man. Well, it's but a spooky old, it's an old dark house. So there's what, gothic, there a lot? spooky stuff going. Yeah, it's creepy old house. I just not as familiar with old, older horror movies. And I don't remember a lot of that. Don't go in there kind of uh, scenes that we see so often in horror films now. So we had a like, wide shot and then there. kind of a medium more, you know, we've this way that we're punching into the house is very interesting or just he's saving the the subjective exterior stuff right. for later on with right vera miles yeah but we're going to get a little bit of subjective stuff here as he comes in now i remember reading that hitchcock was actually ill when they were shooting some of this stuff he just got sick yeah. and was off for a day and had a second unit crew shoot stuff but then he didn't like any of it and had to reshoot it basically just the close-ups of the feet going up the stairs and the hand on the rail he didn't did like re-shoot- it yeah, because uh, the rhythm was wrong, and he needed the rhythm to be just so, because otherwise it looked more like he was sneaking was up to commit Saul a crime had, or something. Yes, yeah, Saul Bass had arguably over-storyboarded this sequence, mm. right? and Hitchcock cut a lot of stuff well, out I think of this shot, insert shots that, that he was imagining. And this shot, well, one of the things I believe he said about this was, he told the the other crew, no, you want to you want to tell the audience something's about that. You want them mm-hmm. to be fearful here, and that's where this shot came from, I believe. Well, then this one, of course. Right. Now, but this there's is no Saul shots Bass. of hands on the banister and things that were right. originally storyboarded. And exactly. this shot just blew my mind yeah. the first time I saw it. It's, <laughs> it's just so crazy. And that and was then, the one, right? That yeah. They say the when the uh, when the everybody got together to see that cut. That was the one that got everybody to jump out of their seat. They couldn't believe how amazing that was. Nobody had any idea. They were gonna, all the people that worked on the movie and, and were in the movie yeah. were amazing. Oh, and I'm sure there's show. some people now that are furious at the movie. They've just killed off two characters that they <laughs> made us invest in. This is not how it's supposed to work. But well, it's good, good to come back to Vera Miles, though. To so talk, come back to, now we, I, I want to be on her side. To so. talk just a little bit about the Arbogast death scene, though, it's just in terms of the fun of what editing can do. One of the things that Hitchcock said 
that motivated that cut from the, uh, the you know the bird's eye view high angle to then that close up of Arbogast's face with the knife slash was a just a practical one. They needed to not be they needed a high angle so that you wouldn't reveal mother, but also just the punctuated uh, feel of going from a high wide shot to a super close shot that. A lot of what he was doing, you know, what Hitchcock was a master in terms of montage and editing, was the shock that you could get from going from a super wide to a super tight. And uh, there's just something really interesting about that kind of punctuation. It feels and like so, a knife slash. Uh, yeah, and supposedly Joe Stefano suggested, the writer suggested that high angle shot, and Hitchcock said, that's going to cost money to do that. And then the next day said, you know, I've thought it, I've thought it through and yeah, I'm going to spend the money to do that, to give that shock of putting us at an angle where we can't help anybody. And we're just watching from above as she mm-hmm. comes out of that door. There's an iconic shot as well. Iconic and arguably a little self-conscious. It's one for the trailer, right? Yeah. <laughs> it keeps moving in. Yeah. It kind of slows down, but doesn't completely stop. That's very film noir, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the my original perception of this movie was that it was not lit nearly as well as his '50s color films, but you know, this it looks great for even with the TV crew. I mean, stuff like this, it's very, very well lit. Strangers on a train kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can see why this guy's career didn't take off. He's just kind of a dead fish in this movie. Oh my God, and in Spartacus, he's Julius Caesar, and he's in that one Douglas Sirk movie where he's wandering around in the snow. So this is John McIntyre, is the actor's name, who I just saw, I mentioned earlier. He was He's the very didactic police commissioner in the Asphalt Jungle. Um, what probably ten years earlier, mm-hmm. eleven years earlier. I always thought it really weird how she jumps around from yeah lady from frame left to frame right in these cuts. It's so her action matches, but it's so weird. That Look is a that. weird cut. Yeah, isn't that goofy? Yeah, I don't know if that was on purpose or not. That might have been. They had to just do this fast and. <laughs> weren't thinking i don't know that's strange. she's not man they're not matching her actually i'm watching her no. now just yeah. looking at her and she's very yeah, strange yeah, choice. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> for 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 though hitchcock who who did storyboard things how does this happen like well, he storyboards things to such a nth degree then maybe you're right maybe there was a weird reason because you know in a way if you look at it she's the one in focus not him where the focus is set on the the older woman on the on his shot right there to be honest, it's kind of strange that she's even in the scene. Yeah. To, to tell you the truth, like we're we're really just kind of getting information here <laughs> from him, right? Yeah. Unless I'm misremembering well, I something. I would think she must have driven this must have driven George Tomasini, the editor crazy. <laughs> Probably. If, if you're paying any attention to her at all, it must have just Yeah, she's just... shoot himself. <laughs> It's one time that the uh, the old pan and scan VHS Even, probably look was at this yeah. shot. Look at John Gavin. You got his shoulder in the frame. It's so it's so ugly. 
there's comfort in that shot. It's but yeah. look at that. Like who mm-hmm. puts who puts somebody like that at the edge of the frame? Yeah. There's another lamp for you, Todd. Yep, yep. <laughs> There he gets his single. The editor's like, oh, clean singles. Oh, yeah. thank God. <laughs> I don't even remember this scene, to be honest. This is like watching it for the first time. Yeah, this scene they stuck in the Super 8 Digest that I have of Psycho, you know, which reduces the entire movie to about 10 minutes. Uh huh. I, I always remember thinking. And, it, you know, it's silent, so it's got subtitles. And it's like, why am I, this is not the best scene in the movie, but they got to get that who's buried up in the cemetery line in there. Oh, somewhere. yeah, okay. That's kind of an interesting shot right there. The full, Yeah, no, that was good. That was good. Kind of a U-shape of the people there. Here's your Arbogast. Yeah. <laughs> Arbogast. That's your moment, man. <laughs> Did not to go back to this, but did Van Zant shoot this scene the same way? Is it is it blocked the same way? Framed up the same way? That be that would might be the most interesting part of the movie <laughs> to look back at. Okay, yeah, like, we'll have to do that. Did I'll he actually that stick? The, put that oh, on the list. <laughs> <laughs> just that scene. Don't watch the whole movie. Looking at the wallpaper. <laughs> Remember when people used to have wallpaper? Yeah. Just wait, Kill. it's going to be back. I it's already back. There's already plenty back. of it out there. See, now that show, that's a, there's a really great shot, I think mm-hmm. that one, but It's an interesting that's an interesting way to go with your hair. <laughs> if you're a balding older man. Most people don't part it down the middle when you're bald in the middle. It's such a, oh, I'm noticing how strange his hair is. She found him together in bed. Such yeah, so, a is, so is she scene. there? Is yeah. the wife there to be that gossipy ghoulish To do the in bed. That's, that's her know? moment. Yeah. Her whispering in bed. See, that's, they're all like that, aren't they, Hitch? But you're right. This is an info dump. That, uh, this is just a long scene. You know who'd be proud of this? Christopher Nolan. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this wouldn't... We'd have had four of them already. Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) I mean, there's two two pretty big info dump scenes in this movie. We'll get to the one, the big one, later. Um, I mean, I adore this movie, but they drag it down just a little bit for me. Uh, I think a lot of people, but it's it's understandable given the, the date, age that this movie was made in as far as the end scene, but we'll get there when we get there. And that previous shot looked like a day for night shot with a legitimate sky behind Could be, yeah. House. That sway of his hips is always just like cracks me up the <laughs> way he goes up those stairs. So I guess for this scene, they had uh, a little person. Mm-hmm. So that uh, oh, that's right. Norman could easily carry her. So this is probably logistically one of the more difficult shots they had to do. 
Oh yeah. Uh, just in terms built, of technology of the time. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure once he figured out they were going to go high, they would may as well make the most of it. I do think there was maybe a cut there. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't think I've ever even noticed it. Because now we're back to the same shot mm-hmm. yeah. of Arbogast's murder. But boy, yeah, you know, there were no Luma cranes back then, or no. much less, you know, more modern stuff. That was a tough right. shot to do. And this wasn't a set with wild walls everywhere, right? Like, I don't think that they could move the whole staircase out of the way right. to get that yeah. a big crane in there. <laughs> That's really, these guys again. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, so soon. Just. <laughs> There's a particular brand of Americana that Hitchcock brings, these kind of smaller town church thing. You know, I'm thinking of even way back, like Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow and stuff. of a Doubt, yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Trouble with Harry. Mm-hmm. Which sort of feels like, you know, David Lynch grabbed a, a, an echo of that, too, for yeah. that, that sort of the yeah. evil lurking underneath the rural pleasantness. Yeah, I really wish that I could somehow, you know, go back in time and experience this movie the way that an audience in 1960 must have experienced it. It just, I don't. I just can't, I can't imagine it. I cannot get there. Because we look at it now and it's a period film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But audiences seeing this in 1960, it was a contemporary movie. It's amazing to me always that how much money this movie made. I mean, people, did people go back and see it again? Maybe a few. Yeah. Didn't a lot of people go home, like my mom, go home and say, don't go see this movie? <laughs> um, it's amazing to me that like, it seems as though everybody saw it. Yeah. And it was like, even if somebody told you not to, that made you want to go, maybe. Yeah, I think my yeah. mom it had saw that kind it of appeal. at a drive-in. If you think TV only had three channels, you know, and it was just a simpler time, and so just things could have, could make a pop cultural splash back then. And I'm sure Hitchcock, who was definitely able to promote himself once he knew what he had it went into high gear you know i mean even when they advertised the movie you know nobody will be allowed to 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 sit down after the movie has started you know so there was this whole kind of thing about going to see psycho and he stole that from clouseau they Mm -hmm. uh they used that gimmick for diabolique a couple Mm. of years earlier yep and uh one of the books, so either Spoto or or Rebella says that Hitchcock was kind of afraid he was going to get busted for kind of ripping off <laughs> Diabolic in a couple of different ways, and hmm. he got lucky. Well, I think everyone involved in making Diabolique loved Hitchcock. <laughs> it might have they might have loved that he ripped them off. But he, Hitchcock felt like. They had somehow beat him. He had been beaten to the punch by Clouseau. Right. That's what I was saying earlier. It's mm-hmm. yeah. part of his um, motivation for making this. 
Now, the one thing I like about John Gavin that we're going to get coming up is that I think he he does legitimately annoy Norman. I always really yeah. feel yeah. feel that yeah. when the, it yeah, starts yeah. really getting under Norman's skin. Yeah, and and Norman is really wicked right here. There's something he's there's something really cocky going on mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. him. Yeah, if there is anything good about the casting of John Gavin, there there is this sort of sense of a certain kind of masculinity that he projects that the character of Norman would find threatening. I mean, there's just this kind of a I don't know if you'd call yeah. it kind of a you know, football quarterback kind of thing or something yeah. going on. Yeah, totally. Well, he's, he's uh, you know, he was the boyfriend of Marion, and now he's, this woman's with him, and mm-hmm. these guys always have women around him, don't they? You know, like, <laughs> uh, but sure, just his I face. If so. anything, you know, yeah. his his face works for that yeah. moment right there. It, it didn't yeah. work for the love story with Janet Lee at all, but as a nemesis to Norman in that moment, it's for sure. It works. And Vera Miles would be in Liberty Valance a year mm-hmm. or two after this. Which I just watched recently. Great movie. Oh, that's that's a family movie, man. My parents and I watched that movie together many mm-hmm. times. I love it. So yeah, so now, well, Hitch, well, go ahead. Hitchcock is making us invest in these two in this in these scenes. And Given what's just happened to the last two people that Hitchcock asked us to invest in, these two might not make it out of the movie either. Yeah, I think now we're fully in the horror movie. I think the audience is now like 100% this is a horror movie now. A horror movie, yeah. <laughs> I, expect, I expect these people to die. But what are we also supposed to think about, you know, these two characters hanging out in a motel room together, you know, and, and she's the sister of this guy that they were having this kind of illicit affair. I mean... There seems to be this implication of, I don't even want to say romance, but there's some sort of sexual connection that we're making by putting them mm-hmm. in that motel room for a minute. So that nobody ever seems scot-free morally in this movie, you know? Like, right. Yeah. This is also that kind of David Lynch amateur detective blue velvet kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of police presence in this movie, which is what the other thing that makes it great. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes it scary. Yeah, do you think this do you think 1960 audiences are nervous here? Oh yeah, because they're so. back in that room, and mom's going to get them. I mean, I, I think now they've they're completely caught up with the movie, and what it is. They they now are like, okay, now I know what this movie is, and now they're going to the scene of the crime, right? So that's mm-hmm. gonna. I mean, somebody just walked in that door earlier, wielding a knife. He keeps the door in frame right here and everything. I think it's. I think they are, yeah. And this is one of the things that movies magically do, right? It's been days in the narrative, but it's only been about 25 minutes, you know, since mm-hmm. since we were in that room. And so yeah. I can see how audiences were just on a hellacious ride the first time they saw this thing. That's weird framing right there. She's so low well, in the frame. It yeah. reminds me of Arbogast earlier. Only he was on the other side of the frame and Norman was in the 
foreground. Remember up front of the office, mm-hmm. it's very similar uh, where they cut off, cut them off at the shoulders. <laughs> Let's split up. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good idea. But I kind of believe all of it. That's what's so interesting. I believe they're doing what what they do. You know? I mean, I don't yeah. know why, but I buy it. <laughs> yeah, this is like the most uncomfortable solicitation of conversation. Like, neither one of these people want to talk to each other at all. Yeah. Norman definitely doesn't, but he's a host, right? He's got to play that part. So here's a good old-fashioned Hitchcock subjective motion. Cut back to the looker. Mm -hmm. Cut back to the point of view. But this time it's earned, you know, because we've been there and we know what can happen. So he milks the suspense. Yeah. For sure. He had become his own influence, right? He, <laughs> he, it's like with Stanley Kubrick. At a certain point, Kubrick just made Kubrick stuff and Hitchcock is now... Riffing on Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. That mirror is shaking behind it. It sure is. <laughs> I just saw that. See up against it? No. So what's happening? Sure. He's pretty close to it. Why why would it be shaking? Flimsy set. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Is that like a little cherub statue in the foreground on that? Yeah. Hey. Oh, we're gonna have this really interesting zoom coming up here. Yeah, this is all pretty suspenseful. Like, I can even feel it now, and I know this movie, but I imagine this worked. Well, we haven't been in this room before. Right. No, but we've thought a lot about it. Yeah, We've wondered about it. Exactly. And we've heard about the... the And she she could have been in there, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, this could have been the discovery, but now... I mean, I think we got to be worried, Mom... Mother's going to come up the stairs, right? Yeah. Because we know she's down in the basement. Here it is. Check this out. Look at that. (laughs) Very interesting. And that was not an optical zoom. That was a, right? That was a camera. That was a real zoom with a zoom lens. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And we got the infinity mirror effect there. Mm -hmm. So everyone has Mm -hmm. to to finish whatever they're drinking in one drink. Yeah. See now that's creepy. Yeah. Man. I know, like when if I was, I was a little was... kid I couldn't understand that. I was like, what is I don't get it. 
I mean, it's somebody's been laying there for a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the mirror has stopped really shaking. Annoyed. The cross cutting only serves to increase the suspense, you know. And it hasn't been a movie that's cross cut like this before. No. You know what I mean? It's it's kept it pretty restricted. Yeah. I mean you did see Norman peek on her and stuff, but mm-hmm. now it's really the contrapuntal stuff is really, really driving me crazy. <laughs> Uh, information these are great these every shot is putting a picture together the puzzle pieces are coming into place well he just just got done saying how happy he and mother were before we cut to this and i don't know kind of seeing the other vision of a childhood here Mm -hmm. i'm not sure what we're supposed to make of it quite yet oh and i've always thought that was interesting the book that doesn't tell you which Nothing side is up. Nothing on the spine, yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't tell you which side is up. It has the exact same on the bottom and the top. It's weird. <laughs> the tapping finger on the foreground's mm-hmm. good. He's pushing A lot of Norman Bates profile shots in this movie. Yeah. You know, where you only see half of him. That's pretty interesting. So he's blowing, Loomis is blowing it here, really. If you think about it, like there's no reason to start probing about the money yet. <laughs> like yeah. you're gonna well, blow the he whole owns thing. A hardware store. What is he? He's not, he's not a detective. Yeah. Well, you should know that until you see her, until she comes back, she's not <laughs> safe. <laughs> now so, look, look how, look at this. That's almost like it's in slow motion. So weird. Mm. Now suddenly we're at it's breakneck. Yeah. And there's only one place to hide. Oh boy! Wait a second. <laughs> Where did he take mother? God, I love that he gives her. Almost looks like he gives her a look. It's scary. I mean, he doesn't see her, but he, he gives that one moment where he looks right where oh, she's boy. at. <laughs> oh boy! Now you we're way in the horror movie territory. Yeah, <laughs> you could have just left. <laughs> Yeah, that's a pivotal moment in the movie right there. Yeah. That little double take. I always liked how the light bulb was in the frame and it and they you dolly past the light yeah. bulb. Yeah. Yeah. And they get that beautiful flare. Mm-hmm. I actually love how mannered that is. Like normally mm-hmm. I would not like, but I love how she intentionally hits that. And here we got some, we got some work to do. We got to get him out of this dress. We got to get the knife out of the way. We got to get the wig off. Yeah. <laughs> we got to open the dress up. <laughs> we're afraid the audience, the audience just isn't going to get it unless we go all the way. I have no idea whether it's the real thing, but that mother there. I remember being at the museum in Paris at the Cinematheque, and she was there. And I always wondered whether it was the real thing. Or oh, wow. Or the French ones were just pulling one over on us. Yeah. And now, well, John, we get to the uh, this lengthy wind-down that you were talking about. 
Well, the best part of it is this gentleman here, Simon Oakland, the great uh, Tony, Tony Vincenzo. Tony Vincenzo from the Tony Night Vincenzo Stalker. Tony Vincenzo from Kolchak. Mm. He was also in Black Sheep Squadron. I remember him a lot from that show when I was a kid, too. He was in tons of stuff over the years. But boy, is this kind of obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, I mean, I get it. Of course, he we look, all know. He looks like if Gregory Peck and Edward G. Robinson were fused into <laughs> one guy. <laughs> oh, God, I want to see that. Uh, that in, to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> Uh, he's sort of hammy. Yeah. It's, oh, it's he's like, a, what are you going to do? He's a hammy actor. Yeah, he's <laughs> a really hammy actor. But what are you going to do? It's like you got to get this stuff out. And you're right. I guess this whole concept was at least to film. Well, yeah, this was all new information, I suppose. It was yeah. not. Yeah, it had to be explained. And, and the audience had to catch its breath and. I I don't know whether it's as tedious then as it is now. Maybe it was, you know, no, people maybe we wanted had a lot answer. of questions to answer. Yeah. I imagine most people were like, yes, I want these answers. I had these questions. But now we don't need this answer. That mm-hmm. just dates the movie a little. It's obnoxious. I, I, do I remember reading somewhere that originally this was written for a woman? I don't know about that. And then they decided, nah, they can't. We're not going to have a woman psychiatrist. We got to have a guy hmm. <laughs> with really shiny hair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's got to just sell it, man. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. I haven't been paying attention. Who is this guy supposed to be? What is his job? Psychi- psychiatrist. He is? Okay. Know. Police psychiatrist? I don't know, though. Yeah. He's a psychiatrist. I was going to say, can you imagine going to this guy for therapy? No. You know, like, he must no, be no, a police no. psychiatrist. I, can't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to get some help from this guy. Criminal psychiatry. I mean, yeah. It's, back then, I bet it wasn't such a gentle uh, practice. Hmm. And I guess the digging up of the body and, you know, taking it back to the house is Ed Gein was robbing a lot of graves, I guess, in addition to killing Mm -hmm. people and then also reburying bodies. Right. Now in Dress to Kill... Doesn't Dennis Franz do more or less the same thing at the end? Doesn't yeah. he have a big speech like this too? I guess so, but that's that's homage, Mitch. Yeah. It's okay when he does it because it's clear homage. That's always funnier when Dennis Franz does it. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like it could have been cut way down. Like it, for, You could get these answers out a little quicker, right? Do we need every bit of information? I don't know. Yeah. Don't say anything. Nobody has any questions. That's the other thing that's so interesting. Well, that would have been made it worse, right? I know. It's like, it's amazing. He has to anticipate their questions so we don't He's have it. This be twice as long. Enraptured. Yeah, okay. John, oh, there we go. Toss one in. I mean, isn't it? But, and of course, it's the dumbest question of all. <laughs> like, he's pretty much explained that. I guess not to 1960 audience anyway.
it's so weird when you think about this weird line that connects this to Dress to Kill and Dress to Kill to The Silence right. of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. These three movies are all in conversation. Well, it's all over now, right? This is not even remotely taboo anymore. Nothing really you could get out of this kind of a, there's no shock to this kind of a story anymore. No. I mean, the Silence of the Lambs, it was shocking. It was more visceral and um, grotesque, I guess. That was about did the you, end of did it. Did you hear that there was, again, I don't know which one of the books it was in, that there was a title that I think was Schizoid that Sam Fuller had registered and they. Yep. No, no, Sam Fuller. Yeah. No, wait. They, Sam Fuller had registered Psycho, right? No, it wasn't Psycho. It was like Schizoid or something, I think, I thought. And they thought mm-hmm. it was so close that they had a lawsuit over it. Of course, There's, William Castle would do Homicidal like a year right. later, I think. Here's Ted Knight. Oh, look at there that. There he is. A little bit part. We were oh. waiting for that blanket. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really thought the Fuller, I really thought Fuller had a script called Psycho for some oh, reason. Maybe, maybe so. And I thought he they just paid him off some money. So this is the riff on Whistler's mother. Right. Yeah, that was in the stuff stuff in a script, right? Yeah, I think so. They said it was I think they toned it way down from what he described actually in the script, if I remember right. And the fly that was supposed to start the beginning of the movie flying in through the window and bothering the two of them in bed mm-hmm. this would have been a an echo of the mm-hmm. fly but that all went away huh. and they had like three or four different voices for mother different actors doing it hmm huh. mm-hmm. And there it is. Yeah. Little hint of the skull. It's kind of a funny shot to go out on in a way. It's almost like it's a wild shot. It's a very disturbing shot. It wasn't what I would have expected. Well, I mean, going back to the car is almost like uh, Hitchcock trolling everyone who who thought that the movie was going to be about the money. Yeah. Like, oh, hell, yeah. by the way, they found this. There's the money. The car. Yeah, they're going to find it. <laughs> by the way, somebody's getting that 40000 He's getting that 40000 back <laughs> for his daughter's house. So it's a happy ending for the banker. For the, for the yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's going to get his money his back. Da- for his daughter and getting her house. That's right. For her wedding. Well, Todd, thank right. you for coming and joining us to do this. Sure. Fun. Sure. I didn't, I didn't say much. I was mostly just enjoying watching the movie. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And thanks to everybody else out there for taking the time to go on this little journey with us and uh, we'll we'll see you the next time we don't know what don't know when don't know don't know when we're gonna see you but we'll see you soon well it sounds like we're doing dr strange love next <laughs> that's what i was trying to get out i couldn't get it out i wanted to see <laughs> maybe we it. will oh i just we'll said it again. on air <laughs> maybe we will. <laughs> all right all right bye-bye thanks everyone bye yeah
Thank you.